The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning we finish up this look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We'll read the whole text this morning just to uh, sort of catapult us back into the context. James writes, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I ask you a simple question this morning as we move our way into the last portion of this text. As believers, as Christians, are our lives primarily made up of rights or responsibilities? Do we primarily as Christians live and move and breathe in the world with a list of rights or a list of responsibilities? Are our lives marked primarily by rights to things that we deserve or responsibilities to do certain things, to act in certain ways? I ask that question because I think particularly in our American Christian context, we are very used to, as Americans, very accustomed to asserting our rights. You can hardly turn on the television and watch a news channel or pick up a newspaper and read uh, some sort of article about what's going on, whatever the hot-button topic is of the moment in the culture. And at the bottom of it is somebody asserting that they have some right that's being violated or some right that is being withheld that they deserve. We as Americans are all about rights. Our, our nation is formed with a constitution, and at the very beginning of it, one of our foundational documents is, is called a, a Bill of Rights. It enumerates things that, as Americans, we are entitled to or feel entitled to. We are very comfortable and accustomed to talking about the rights we have. And I don't mean to in any way, any way diminish the fact that there are cultural rights that come uh, as a part of being American that, that you don't get if you were a part of some other society or some other governmental system. But I just simply want to make the distinction that to think one way as Americans is altogether different than to think what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian and live here or to be a Christian and live anywhere. 
You see, as Americans, we're accustomed to asserting rights and we're accustomed to telling everybody what our rights are and to complaining about rights being violated and to fight for things that we feel like are our rights to have. In fact, most of our fighting and most of our quarreling roots back to some sort of supposed right that we're defending or some sort of a right that we're pursuing. I want to submit to you this morning that we must think of ourselves as something more than just Americans, people who live in a particular nation. If we come this morning and gather as people who claim to be Christians, people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who belong to Christ, then above being an American, we are Christians. And as Christians, we don't have rights to assert. We have responsibilities to carry out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul reminds us in very vivid language. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul is, is, is poking us in between the eyes and he is saying, listen, you need to understand something about your identity and who you are. You do not belong to yourself. You've been purchased by Christ. You do not, you do not have rights to assert. You don't even own yourself. You're owned by someone else. You have no place to exalt yourself. You have only a place to submit yourself to the one who owns you. We're owned by God. We're purchased at the cost of His Son. He owns us. We belong to Him. He has the right to do with me and to do with you whatever He pleases. He owes me nothing. The only thing that I deserve... The only thing that I am owed is judgment and hell. That's the only thing God owes me. That's the only thing that I've earned as a wage for my life, is God's judgment and eternal hell. That's what I'm owed. If I have a right to anything, that's what I have a right to. Anything that I get, anything that you get that's above that, is a remarkable work of God's grace. That is a foundational piece to understanding who we are as Christians and who we are in the world around us. And it is a foundational piece to understanding the second part of this text that we're looking at. If we're going to understand the remedy to all of the conflicts we find ourselves in, it must begin with a foundational understanding that we live and move and breathe and operate in a world in which we have no rights to anything. We have responsibilities to the one who owns us. And James is going to flesh that out for us in this text. And he's going to say to us, if you want to end all the fighting and the quarreling, then it's going to begin with you laying down your rights. And laying down this idea that somebody somewhere owes you something. And that you have some right to demand of somebody something and to go fight to get it if they don't give it. The Christian life is a life of responsibilities. In fact, entrance into the body of Christ begins with dying to ourselves. Jesus says it very vividly in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and following. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. To take up his cross daily means to die to himself every single day and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, that's the proposition for entering the kingdom of God. You enter by dying to yourself and submitting to Him. The person who wants to hold on to himself, the person who wants to hold on to her rights and continue to own herself and own himself and operate under supposed rights is a person that Jesus says can't come after him. The one that comes after me, he says, anyone who comes after me, he must deny himself. He must die to himself every single day and be made alive to me. That's the entrance into the body of Christ. It's dying to our rights. It's dying to ownership of ourselves. It's dying to our desires. And the Christian life really continues with an, an obedience to God's will, doing what He desires, following His commands. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself, and then take up His cross daily, and then the rest of it is following after me. It's pursuing me. It's submitting to my will and to my plan and doing what I say and going where I say go and following my direction. It's the opposite of directing their own lives. It's the opposite of asserting rights and telling everybody what you deserve and what ought to be given to you. You see, as a Christian, my life is not about doing my thing. It's not about living my way. It's not about chasing my dreams and my desires. My life is about following Jesus, serving Him, doing His will. And that's my responsibility. And in fact, it is the very least I could do. James is going to tell us today that the remedy to conflicts begins with humbling ourselves, laying down our rights, and submitting ourselves to God. Every fight, every quarrel, no matter whether it's a big war that James has talked about in this text or a little tiny skirmish, no matter which one it is, underneath it all is a failure to submit to God and humble ourselves before Him. And it's an attempt to take back our lives for ourselves and capture something that we think we need that He has not given. And so that's what James is after in this text. He, is, he has been just pounding us the last two weeks. Do you feel pounded the last two weeks? I feel pounded the last two weeks as I've been listening to and thinking through and saying to you what James has said to me. This whole idea of, of, of fights and quarrels, what causes quarrels and fights among you. It's not the other people around you. It's not the environment in which you live. It's not the circumstances of your life. The real problem, James says, you want to know what, what, what's the problem when you fight and you quarrel in all the big ways and little ways? The problem is you. Man, that hurts. It still hurts me. The problem is you. When I'm in a fight and I'm quarreling, the problem is me. It's, I've got desires. I want something and I'm fighting to get it. I want something. There's something I want that God hasn't given, and I'm going after it. That desire has, has crested the banks that hold it in, and it is now destroying inside of me, and it's driving me to pursue something God hasn't provided. And so I'm fighting for it. And I'm doing so in sort of a, a prideful, self-sufficient way. I don't even bother to pray, James says. I don't even pro bother to, to, to ask God for the things that I'm pursuing. Because I'm so prideful and self-sufficient, I think I'm in charge of my life. And I think I can go handle it on my own. I don't even need to bother with asking God for these things. 
So I fight because I have out-of-control desires. I fight because I'm pridefully self-sufficient. And I think I can handle everything on my own. And then James just, just, just sticks the knife in and twists it a little bit when he says, and by the way, underneath all that, you're in a spiritual adulterer. When you fight and you quarrel, you're abandoning your fidelity to God with whom you have a covenant relationship and you are seeking to find satisfaction in someone or something else. You're cheating on God when you fight and you quarrel. And that's painful. That is just painful. When I think about the little conflicts and the big conflicts that have crossed the um, sort of the, the, the radar of my life, uh, and I think back on those things, man, there's a part of me that just wants to find somebody else to blame, that wants to make some sort of excuse why it's not my fault, why it's somebody else, why it's something else, why it's not me. And James gives me no avenue by which to do that. He says, at the end of the day, it is you. It is you. You're the problem. And if the problem's going to ever end, it's going to end because something changes in you. We need God's grace to help us to see that. And as He gives us eyes to begin to see that, and we begin to look at ourselves that way, and we begin to look at our fights and our quarrels, and, and in that sort of a light, we begin to see these roots that sort of just sort of weave their way down into our souls. And it is really horribly offensive when I see those things inside of my soul. To see desires that are out of control. To see how, how deeply prideful self-sufficiency roots down into my motives and my thoughts and my attitudes. To see how, how deep the spiritual adultery of my life can go. How, how deeply it is that I, that, I, that I run to things to find satisfaction that I should be running to God for. It's almost to the point where it drives you to despair and you think, there's no way, I can't escape this. I can't uproot these weeds. They're too deep. They're, they're, they're too deceptive. They, they run too far. I'm never going to find my way out of this thing. And about the time we start to despair, about the time we start to think there's no hope, James says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. I'm so thankful James said that. Because I was just about to give up hope. And right in the midst of the darkness of all the filth that roots down into my heart, it's like James just takes a spotlight and he shines it into the soul and he says, listen, there's a ray of hope in the midst of all this. Yes, this is a darkness that roots into your soul, but it's not a darkness for which there is no way out. God gives more grace. Yes, your sin is dark, but God gives more grace. Yes, there are things rooted in your soul that you would rather deny and blame others for. And it's hideous and it's filthy, but God gives more grace. Praise Him for that. What is grace? Well, grace is God's undeserved favor. That's all it is. It's God giving me what I do not deserve. It's Him pouring out into me things that I haven't earned, that I have no right to, that He gives me simply because He is who He says He is. He gives us what we don't deserve, not because we've earned it, but because He, by nature, is a gracious God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, the context is Moses, and he's speaking to God, and he says, God, I want you to, to pass by me and show me who you are. And God humors him in Exodus 34, and, and it's recorded here in verses 6 through 7, this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed... 
proclaimed what? His name. The Lord, the Lord, a God who is what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let's just marinate on that for a second. As painful as the last two weeks have been, looking deeply at our own sin, I want you to gaze upon what the Word of God tells us about our God. He is merciful. He is a God who is gracious. He is a God who is slow to anger, who's abounding in love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, who forgives transgression, who forgives our sins. I don't know about you, but praise God that that's who He is. The whole foundation of the Gospel is this word, grace. It's all about God giving what we don't deserve. Paul says, it is by grace that you've been saved. Right? It's, been, it's, it's by grace you've been saved. It's not something you deserve. It is God giving you what you don't deserve. It comes at you through faith. But it's not by your works. You can't earn it. It's just because He is who He is. He's a God who loves to give you and I what we do not deserve. That's Him. That's our God. It is a basic doctrinal foundation that separates Christianity from nearly every other religious system. Nearly every other religious system in the world is built off of some sort of merit. I do certain things to appease God or the gods, and if I do certain things enough, or I do them right, or I do them frequently enough, or I do them devoutly enough, then somehow God then rewards me with whatever it is I need, forgiveness or good things or good health or a happy home or financial blessings. Christianity stands in complete counter, uh, countermeasure to that kind of a religious system. Christianity, at its very foundation, is a, is a religion that is built off of grace. The idea that there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. That there's nothing we could ever do to earn His salvation. That our only hope is that God would be, turn out to be, a God who is gracious. A God who will give us what we don't deserve and what we have not and cannot earn. And it turns out that that's exactly who He is. As ugly as the roots of our sin are, as dark as the corruption of our hearts, there is hope. There is hope because He gives more grace. However dark my sin, there is more grace in God. However deep my rebellion, there is more grace in God. There is no extent to which I can live my life in sin and rebellion that my sin and rebellion crest the storehouse of God's grace. I can never out His grace. It's an old hymn we used to sing growing up. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You remember that song? If you grew up in the church? It's true. There's a newer song that I recently heard. It's got a long title, There Is No Sin That I Have Done. But it says this, There is no sin that I've done that has such height and breadth that it can't be washed by Jesus' blood and covered by His death. Right. Because His grace is more. 
No matter what I've done, no matter how long I've done it, His grace is more. But James gives us a warning. His grace is more, but His grace is not universal and it is not automatic. Because He says there's a condition. He gives more grace, but then He turns right around and says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves to God. To receive His grace, we must submit ourselves to Him. We must release control of our lives, our circumstances, our futures to Him. We must surrender our rights to self-government. We must drop our list of demands, our list of expectations, our lists of entitlements, and bow before Him and say, in, in essence, God, whatever I am, whatever I have, it's yours. Do with it as you please. That's what it means to submit to God. His grace is more, but it comes to those who humble themselves and submit to Him. In fact, he says there's one disqualifier for receiving His grace, and that is pride. Did you catch that? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. The one thing that locks us out of receiving the grace of God is a prideful, self-sufficient heart that refuses to submit to Him. In fact, not only does a prideful, self-sufficient heart uh, lock us out from God's grace, but the text here tells us that God, in fact, opposes the proud. That it sets us up not only as ones who who are eliminated from receiving His grace, but it sets Him up as our enemy against whom... We're arrayed. In fact, the word is a military term. That word, God opposes the proud, it's a military term. It literally means that He sets Himself in array against. Robertson says this, that pride calls out God's armies. No wonder, therefore, it goes before destruction. I like that. When I'm filled up with a prideful sort of self-sufficiency, when I decide I'm going to control my life and I don't need God's help and I'm not going to submit to His control, that I'm going to live it my way, then not only do I lock myself out from receiving that more grace that He promises and that He gives, but I also set myself up in opposition against Him and at war with Him. God actively opposes those who are filled up with pride. So not only... This prideful self-sufficiency that's underneath all of our fighting and quarreling. Not only is it a a nasty, filthy root of a sin in our lives, but it's a stupid sin. Because it sets us in battle against God, a battle we lose every time. Submit yourselves to God. That's the beginning of the remedy. The beginning of the remedy of this all is submit yourselves to God. If the roots of our conflict are, I've got out-of-control desires, I want something, I'm demanding something, I'm fighting for something, I'm being driven by nothing more than my desires. There's no concern for God's will. only thing that's driving me is my wants. And so James says, submit yourself to God. Submit your wants to God. Submit your desires to God. Stop fighting. Stop demanding. And submit yourself to God. That's where the remedy begins. To submit literally means to arrange under. To arrange under. 
to arrange under. It's another military term. James uses military terms all throughout this text. It means to, to be subject like a soldier. Like a soldier is expected to carry out the orders of his commanding officer. That that's what it means to submit here. It's to submit ourselves under God's control of our lives. That we lay down our rights to do whatever we want. And our sole responsibility is to carry out his commands. Like a good soldier. Doriani writes this. He says, Submission means one person who is lower in rank, age, position, or power will yield to a person with greater rank, age, position, expertise, or power. It's to yield before God. It requires a bending of my will to His. It's the opposite of opposing. It means to stop resisting God and to yield. Listen, if you and I are involved in quarrels and fights, whatever size, whatever the the immediate context, if we're fighting to get what we want and we're battling others to capture it, to submit to God is to simply lay down our weapons. It's to be on the middle of the battlefield and to just drop our weapons. It's to close our mouths. It's to lay down our rights. It's to bow before Him. It's to renounce our claim on whatever the object is that we're fighting for. And it's to be absolutely content with whatever He provides. That's what it means to submit to God. Submit to God. You see, on the surface, it looks like when we're fighting with other people that this is an interpersonal problem. Well, it is an interpersonal problem in a sense, but that's only the symptom. It's not the real problem. The real problem is that I'm at war with God. And I'm refusing to submit to Him and to yield to Him. And this interpersonal stuff doesn't end until I, in my heart, yield to Him. So we can do conflict resolution on the surface between person to person all day long and we never solve the actual problem. Because the problem when I fight and quarrel is between me and God first. And it's the starting point to recovery. I must submit to God. I must bow before Him. I must bow before His Lordship. I must start at a place where I recognize and confess His ownership over me. That I have no rights. He owns me. That I recognize and confess His right to rule my life. I recognize and confess, Lord, You own me. You have bought me at the price of Your Son. I I, I am not my own. I belong to You. It's to recognize and, and to confess that He has the right to give or to take away anything from me. Job understood this in the midst of great pain and trouble. In Job 121, Job simply says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's part of what it looks like to be in submission to God. To recognize He owes me nothing, that He owns me. To recognize He has the right to rule me as He wishes. To recognize He has the right to give, and He has the right to take away. And He has the right to do with me whatever He pleases, and to do with my life whatever He pleases. Those are His rights, not mine. 
So the remedy to all of our conflicts begins with a submission to God. If you're in the midst of some sort of a fight or quarrel at the moment, step number one, step number one, is to look in the mirror, to, to recognize and confess your sin of a lack of submission to God, and to begin that process of just laying down your weapons and confessing His right to do whatever He pleases with you. But James, we might ask ourselves, what does it look like even more? So James gives us a bigger picture of what it looks like to submit to God. The rest of this text is actually James sort of fleshing out this idea of submission to God. If you want to sort of understand the text, it begins with a a command to submit to God. And on the back end of it is a command to humble ourselves before the Lord, which are exactly sort of synonymous commands. And they serve as bookends to our text. And so in between, James saying to us, submit yourself to God, and him telling us at the end, humble yourselves before the Lord, everything sort of sandwiched in the middle is his fleshing out what that looks like. And we'll only have time to sort of fly by it this morning, but enough to capture the essence. What does it look like? Well, it begins with two commands that are parallel and two results that are parallel. Number two and number three that you see up there. Two commands, resist the devil and draw near to God. And each command has a result. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. If we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. It's poetic parallelism here, which means nothing to you. And I just mention it because I think it's neat. James doesn't blame our fights and quarrels on the devil. He doesn't give us the opportunity to go around saying, well, this really isn't my fault. The devil made me do it. There was a comedian before my time. Some of you who lived before my time remember who that was? See, somebody knew, Flip Wilson. He doesn't give us that opportunity, but he does recognize that that we do have an enemy of our souls who is involved in the conflicts that we're involved in. The devil doesn't make us do it. He doesn't doesn't have the ability to, to force us and coerce us to do things that we choose not to do. But you know what he can do? He can tempt us. He can lie to us. He can stoke our human pride. He can deceive us. And whenever people are fighting and quarreling, you can bet that he's somewhere in the mix. That he's somewhere in the mix whispering in somebody's ear, tempting, deceiving, lying. Stoking the the fires of of sin that burn in the heart. Stoking lust that underneath the sin that drives the fights. And so James says submission to God begins also with a a resisting the enemy. It, It means identifying his lies, rejecting his influence. It means refuting his claims, refusing his suggestions. Recognizing that when there's a temptation for me to go to battle against somebody else, that underneath there, there are some lies, some deceptive lies that are being sold to me by an enemy who does not have my best interest in mind, who really is out to destroy my soul. And he's the one who whispers into my ear, Boy, you deserve that. Look at her. Look at him. Why do they have that and you don't have it? You deserve that. You need to go get it. You hear what they said to you? That's disrespectful. You need to go assert your rights. You need to go make that right. See, those kind of things don't come from God. They come from an enemy who seeks to destroy the soul. So James says you better resist the devil. What does that look like? Well, let's answer the question what it does not look like, first of all. What does it mean to... This, te- this text, boy, oh boy. Over the years, I've seen people pull this thing out of, out of context and 
come up with some of the wackiest stuff. What it does not look like to resist the devil. It does not look like going on some offensive, looking, running around looking for demon engagement. There have been those I've encountered over the years who, um, who do this. They have these really elaborate uh, schemes developed for identi- identifying demons and naming them and, and finding territorial demons and finding demons of cities and finding demons between every rock and bush and building and naming them and going all around the city waging some sort of an offensive war, uh, uh, some sort of spiritual offensive war against demons and against Satan. I remember this lady who sat in my office and just made my head spin with some of the stuff she was trying to tell me. And she believed this stuff. Listen. That's not what James is talking about. In fact, that's foolish beyond measure. There is no biblical call in the text of Scripture anywhere for us to go on any sort of offensive thing where we're running around looking for demons to engage, naming them, trying to figure out some some hierarchy that we don't know, and acting as though we have some sort of offensive power to go to battle against them. That is built off of human imagination, not biblical truth. It underestimates demonic power and it overestimates human authority. And you and I have no business engaging in such things. Jesus and the disciples never went demon hunting. They went about their ministry, and as they they encountered the power of Satan in the midst of doing ministry, they dealt with it and they went back to ministry. They never went on some sort of offensive movement looking for demon engagement. And neither should I, and neither should you. And that's what James is not talking about. He's not talking about talking to or rebuking Satan verbally either. Met people who, who do that too. You know, like to talk to talk to the devil. You know, get away from me, devil. Leave me alone, devil. Get out of my house, devil. Martin Luther, incidentally, one of the heroes of, of the faith, great reformer. Um, Luther liked to talk to the devil. He, this was something he engaged in quite often. Um, to him, Satan was very real and very present in opposing him all the time. Some of that may root back to his medieval context. But not all of it. But he was also quite vivid in speaking to the devil. 1531, uh, uh, we're told of a story in which uh, Luther was having sort of one of these illustrative conversations. And by the way, he liked to have them quite frequently uh, while on the toilet. Um, And one particular engagement, this is exactly what Luther said, and we have this recorded. He said this while on the toilet. I'm cleansing my bowels and worshiping God Almighty. You deserve what descends and God what ascends. So you can figure that part out yourself. It changes your whole view of Martin Luther, doesn't it? If that doesn't, doesn't give you a new view on Luther, uh, here's a quote from Table Talk, verse uh, number 469. He says this, Almost every night when I wake up, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. I've come to this conclusion when the argument that the Christian is without law and above the law doesn't help, I instantly chase him away with a fart. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. This is actual Luther. Where were this stuff when we were doing the Protestant Reformation, right? Back in celebrating the 500th anniversary. Luther, at one time, purportedly even threw an inkwell at the devil and smashed, smashed it up against the wall. I'm sorry, ladies. I know I've just ruined your household for the rest of the week because I can see John's going to be walking into the room next week. Or Melody's going to go, John, what have you done? 
just resisting the devil, honey, just resisting the devil. I can see that. It's going to happen, John. I'm sorry, this is way off target here. All I'm trying to say is Luther is wrong about this. Okay, Luther is wrong. We have no business talking to the devil. We have no, no business verbally engaging the devil. We don't have any real biblical sort of uh, foundation for such things. It's kind of also a bit nonsensical. Uh, I think people get this from passages like Acts 16, verse 18, uh, which tells us, and this uh, she kept doing for many days, this was a demon-possessed girl. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so people will take a text like that and they'll think not only should we be talking to Satan and demons in some sort of a verbal confrontation, but we can use the name of Jesus like a magic spell, like abracadabra or hocus pocus. So we walk around wherever we think there's a demon influence and we just say, Jesus, 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 Jesus over this and Jesus over that. And we make the name of Jesus into something like hocus pocus. And that's foolish as well. In that particular text, it's not the magic of saying the name. But when Paul says, I cast you out in the name of Jesus, he is simply saying, I cast you out by the power and the authority of Jesus. The word itself is not magical. In fact, demons are not afraid to, to hear the name Jesus. They even speak the name Jesus on occasion. They're very well acquainted with who he is. Mark 5, 7, a demon-possessed man crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He knows who Jesus is. He uses his name. He's not afraid of that. The word itself is not magical. And in case you need a warning about what happens to the fools who go around chasing demons, thinking they have some authority over them, you can just read Acts 19, verses 13 through 16. And I'll read it for you today. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. In other words, they're just running around saying, Hey, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, by the name of Jesus, come out, come out, and so on and so forth, using it as a magic spell. Seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They were lucky they came out of it alive. We've got no business running around trying to engage demons, or Satan for that matter. James says we're to resist the devil. There's nothing offensive about that. It's a completely defensive term. It's a, it's a term that means to stand against, to withstand Richardson writes this, Evil cannot coerce the human will, but is dependent upon it. Much like a parasite. The devil is the active opponent of God and his people, but he resorts to his lying, deceptive capacities. Human creatures who believe these lies contribute to their physical and mental strengths, or they contribute their physical and mental strengths to his cause of influencing humanity for their destruction and for his glory. What does Paul have in mind when he says we're to resist the devil and he'll flee from us? I mean, excuse me, what does James have in mind? He has in mind what Paul had in mind in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says we're to, to put on the full armor of God. When he says to, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is Ephesians 6.11. 
He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness Uh, given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Multiple times throughout that text, Paul uses the word stand and withstand. The issue is we come under assault by satanic lies and deceptions. And the goal is not to go on some offensive war against him, but it's to put on our armor and to take up the weapons by which God has given us to be able to withstand and to stand up to his attack. The goal at the end is not to advance and win some war. The goal is to let him give us his best and at the end of it be still standing. You see that? How do you do that? You do that with a belt of truth. You do that with a a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The way Jesus did it when He was assaulted by Satan in the wilderness. When Satan hurls his lies and temptations at Christ, and Christ time and time again says to him, It is written. You've given me your lies, now let me tell you the truth. Here's what the truth says. The only weapon we have against Satan is the truth. He is a master liar, he is a master deceiver, and that is what he does, and that is who he is. And the only weapon we have against him is the truth. And the truth is found in the Word of God. And so when people don't know the Word of God, they're powerless against the enemy. He is able to deceive them. Which is why as believers we have to be immersed in God's Word. Because if we're not, we'll never stand against his assault. We'll never be able to resist him. Paul says resistance also looks like fleeing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. In 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, So flee from your youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Part of resisting the devil it begins with just fleeing the temptation. When Satan brings into our lives a temptation, and it's very vivid in front of us, one of the best ways to resist the devil is to just get out of dodge. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife has, has cleared the household and grabs him by the, by the clothing and says, you will lay with me. I mean, Joseph doesn't hang around there and have a conversation about it. He doesn't try to reason with her. He doesn't try to hang around in the midst of that temptation. He just leaves his jacket behind and runs out the door. James says, Part of our remedy for all the fights and all this is to just run from the temptation. When I'm tempted to bow up in my pride and to go to war with somebody, to get something I want, the best thing I can do is run the other way. The best thing I can do is run the other way. When Satan begins to, or his minions begin to, 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 to influence our thoughts with those lies and deception, we go to God's Word and we speak the truth back. In our hearts, we just say, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth. I don't believe that's a lie, and I'm not going to do that. And we pray. The Bible says when we do that, he flees. He flees. He runs. He doesn't always flee at once. 
He may come back, come back around a few times. But we can have victory. He is not an insurmountable foe. He can be resisted. We know that ultimately he will be defeated and has been defeated at the cross and that defeat will become permanent at the end of time. But in the meantime, he can assault, he can tempt, he can deceive, he can influence, but we can resist and he has to leave. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You resist the enemy and he runs away. And I turn from him and I draw near to God and God comes near to me. Do you see the movement? When I resist the enemy, he has to go away. When I come near to God, God moves near to me. It's a beautiful picture. And this is two sides of the coin of this submission to God. Resisting the devil and then drawing near to God. I come near to him. I turn away from the satanic temptation and I run toward God. I run toward Him in prayer. I run toward Him in repentance. I run toward Him in worship. And as I do that, He in turn comes near to me. When you and I are exposed to our sinfulness, sometimes our guilt and our shame will tempt us to want to run and hide from God. When in in fact, the exact opposite is what we need to do. James calls us not to run and hide from our sin, but to draw near to God. And he promises that when we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. And He will draw near to us, not in anger, but He will draw near to us with that more grace that He promises. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. No matter how dark the sin, no matter how long the rebellion, those who draw near to God will find that He draws near to them. God is not a God of rejection. He is a God who loves to come near to those who come near to Him. He loves to to move towards those who move towards Him with a submissive and humble heart. And this is also a distinctively Christian doctrine. A God who draws near, near to those who draw near to Him. In the Old Testament, Moses recognized this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, Moses says this, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord God is to us whenever we call upon Him? Who has anything like this in the world? What other nation that worships any other God has anything like this? Nobody has anything like this. We have a God who isn't distant and unconcerned with our lives and floating around in space doing God stuff while we do people stuff down here. He's a God who loves to come near to us. And get involved in our lives. And allow us to come near to Him. But James finishes this by telling us what this kind of a repentance looks like. It looks like drawing near to God, but it also looks like cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. The hands represent our deeds. The hearts represent our motives. And this is Old Testament temple language that James is using but what he's simply saying to us is this that we can always come near to God and when we do God will come near to us but we don't waltz into his presence as prideful arrogant sinful people we waltz into his presence humbly before him with people who are washing our hands and cleansing our hearts who are recognizing the defilement of our sin and we are coming before him with the desire to be cleansed of that stuff not arrogantly boastful of it The psalmist writes this, 
Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Say this part with me. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. True repentance and a true movement of drawing near to God is marked by a genuine commitment to turn around and live differently. To turn and live differently. To change behavior. Repentance, true repentance, is not simply adding God on to our sinful lives or adding religious activity onto our sinful lives. True repentance in drawing near to God is not just I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start reading my Bible and I'm going to start doing religious things. To draw near to God is to submit to Him and it is to turn away from a life of sin and to wash that filth from my hands and to commit to changed behavior toward Him. It also has underneath it a a genuine brokenness over the darkness of my rebellion. That's why he says words like this. We mourn, weep, be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's another way of saying that underneath true repentance and a true drawing near to God is a brokenness over our sin, not an arrogant flaunting of it. He's saying, in essence, there are people in the body of Christ who are laughing at their sin and they ought to be weeping over it. And when we look around the culture in which we live, even the Christian culture in which which we live, we see such a vivid display of that. Believers who laugh and joke about their sin instead of being broken over it. To draw near to God and to have Him draw near to us where we experience that more grace is to come saying, God, I've lived a filthy life and I'm washing my hands of that lifestyle. And inside, I I am devastated that I have rebelled against you like I have. I am broken over that. It's not funny. It's not a joke. It's not something to make fun of. I'm broken that I've done this to you. And I humble myself before you and submit myself to you. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. It's the picture of the one who's bowed before him in humble submission to whom he reaches down and he puts his hand on your chin and he lifts your eyes up. He says, look at me. In me, there's more grace. There's more grace. Whatever you've done, I've got more grace. However far you've run, I have more grace. And I will dispense it to you because you've come humbly, broken over your sin, Washing your hands, cleansing your heart, laying down your rights in submission to me. Any person who does that finds more grace at his feet will never, ever, ever be turned away. Never, ever, ever. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that you our position this morning as His enemy. You are not His friend. He's allowed you to live for now. But that too will come to an end. And if something doesn't change in your life, if your relationship with Him does not change, you will stand before Him as your judge and you will get what you deserve and what you've earned. And that is His judgment in eternal hell. But He stands and makes an offer to you. Whatever you've done, however you've rebelled against Him. He displays before you His Son who died on the cross, shed His blood to pay the price for your sins. 
And He makes an offer to you. Humble yourself before me. Confess your sin. Submit yourself to me. Lay down your rights to your life. Receive me as your Lord and Savior. And I have more than enough grace to cover every bit of your sin. And I am more than gracious and willing to forgive and to give you a fresh start. To wipe the slate clean and to offer you new and eternal life. Anyone who does that can receive that. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done. You must submit yourself to Him. And you can do that right now. If you're a believer and you've been caught up in fighting and quarreling and bickering in your home, in your workplace, or wherever you display such things, and you've come to realize in these last weeks that you're the problem, James says, for you too there's more grace. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourself before the Lord. Drop your weapons. Lay down your rights. Confess His ownership and His right to do whatever He wants with you. And you too will find at His feet more grace. More than enough grace. And you too will find that He will reach down. And as you humble yourself, He will lift you up. And He'll make you a different person. And He'll end the fighting and the quarreling. Let's pray together. Oh God, You are a gracious, gracious God. We confess that and we confess it with joy. Because as we confess our own sin, as we see it and confess it, we are we're blown away. We like to think of ourselves as good people, but Your Word exposes us that we are not good people. Oh, we can, we can put on a good front. We can put on a veneer of morality and religiosity and make people think we're good. But as Your Word has shown us in these last weeks, there is rot underneath the veneer. And in and of ourselves, we're powerless to do anything about it. We are slaves to that kind of thing. But you give more grace. You are a God of grace and mercy, a God who loves to forgive, a God who loves to restore, a God who loves to dispense grace. And so we exalt in the fact that you are gracious and you give more grace. Help us this morning, every one of us in this room, to humble ourselves before you, to lay down our weapons, to lay down our pride, to lay down our rights, and to submit to you in all things. To lay down our rights and to take up our responsibilities. To follow you. To be content with whatever you give us and whatever you do with us. May we experience and find that abundant grace dispensed to us even right now. We pray for your honor, Lord Jesus.